Welcome to episode 5 of You All Meet in a Tavern. We're doing a little bit of remodeling around here, so please excuse the dust. In the last of our Horror and Canyon series for you this All Hallows' Eve, we have Ari Marmel joining us to discuss some of our favorite horror role-playing games and settings. Particularly White Wolf, we spend a lot of time talking about World of Darkness, but we also cover Ravenloft, Call of Cthulhu, and quite a few others. So grab a drink from the bar and take a seat, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called Recursions, that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there. So, you all meet in a tavern. Sitting in the dark corner is a man dressed all in black. Your host, Daryl Machu. And to his right, as always, is Ross Watson. Hello. And joining us at the table today is Ari Marmel. Hello. Good to have you on board, Ari. Welcome to episode five of You All Meet in a Tavern. And today we're talking about horror RPGs. So, it seemed like a really good idea to bring you on board for this particular topic. Ari, can you maybe tell our listeners what your gaming character sheet looks like? As far as the actual playing, I've been doing that since I was nine, but uh, we're not talking about that here. So, I began freelancing for White Wolf in late 2000. Worked with them pretty steadily until 2004 and on and off since then. My most recent gig with them was actually on the new... uh, the new mummy, but I've worked on both versions of Vampire, Masquerade, and Requiem, several of their other games. From there, I branched out into some uh, D20 work for various companies, went from there to working for Wizards of the Coast, D&D 3rd and 4th edition. I'm still doing that on occasion, but for the, uh, for the most part, I've since moved into uh, writing fiction. What have you got out fiction-wise right now? Well, at the moment, my focus has been on, I have the uh, Wittershin series, which is technically YA fantasy, but it's YA and from Pyre books. The third one of those is coming out in just a couple of months, which is, that'll be uh, Lost Covenant. Early next year, I have the Mick Oberon series starting, which is basically urban fantasy set in Prohibition-era gangland Chicago. Yeah, you were telling me about this uh, in the interview we did, and it sounds really, really awesome. I'm I'm really happy with how it came out. It's an interesting voice to try to write in, uh, with the, the the slang and the speech of the period. You know, I'm really happy with it. I think it combines most of what I like. It's got fantasy. It's got some fairly dark aspects to it. I don't think it ever. Did you quite... get to write? Did you get to write someone saying it's curtains for you? I don't remember if I actually had curtains in there, but uh... <laughs> sequel hook. It's like this, see? (laughs) 
I believe the setup is uh, Oberon's been expelled from the Sealy Court or something like that. Uh, the character's name is, is, is Mick Oberon. He is, anytime he's asked about it, he refers to being the, the third cousin on his mother's side to the actual King Oberon. He is an exiled noble from the Sealy Court who has wound up as a typical, almost stereotypical P.I. in Chicago. Very cool. I figured it was a good way of combining the, the classic noir tropes with the, uh, with the fantasy aspects. That's that's very cool. Now, what I, what's what's really interesting to me is, um, you know, Ari and I have actually kind of worked together a couple of times, although in very removed fashion. Um, first of all, Ari and I worked on the same book back in t- about ten years ago now, um, Dawn Forge. Right. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's a blast from the past, isn't it? Yeah. No, I I I I still get depressed when I realize how long ago some of this stuff was. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we both worked together on Dawnforge, and then more recently, Ari wrote the novelization for Darksiders Two, of which I was actually writing the uh, the in-game storyline stuff. So it was kind of a neat, almost parallel track there. Oh yeah, no, I I had a lot of fun with that actually. I think the Abomination Vault is probably, if not the most fun I've had on a tie-in, then certainly uh, top two or three. That's awesome. Now, granted, I haven't written that many tie-ins, but I mean that in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) So, when we say, you know, we brought you on board to talk about horror RPGs, um, you've got a pretty strong pedigree with that, don't you? Yeah, like I said, I I started off with White Wolf, uh, a lot of Vampire, uh, some Mummy, a few other things. You kind of closed out Vampire the Masquerade in a way, didn't you? I I did. My my first tie-in fiction novel was the Gehenna novel for Vampire, the final final novel in the series. And I also did the opening fiction for the final RPG book in the series, also called Gehenna, confusingly enough. It was fun to work on. I uh, would do a few things differently now, I think. No, I, 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 I enjoyed closing that out. You know, actually, that's a great segue to, like, maybe one of the first things we wanted to talk about tonight was actually, if you want to talk about horror RPGs, I think you have to, you absolutely have to look at one of the biggest, most influential studios in that line, and that was absolutely White Wolf, wouldn't you agree? I, I, I would, yeah. I mean, they certainly weren't the first, but I think, I think they were the first to really tap into the, uh, the zeitgeist of the gaming community at the time. The, the first really... I don't want to say it brought horror gaming into the mainstream, because that implies that there was a mainstream. <laughs> well, at the time, it kind of did, because at that point in time, there was also a big resurgence in the golf community, and they yes. really, yeah, really Tapping into that it. subculture was huge. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I, I guess in a way they did. That was Marilyn Manson's... Marilyn Manson t-shirts with big giant onks on them as far as Well, it was not just that. It was, you know, Neil Gaiman's, uh, you know, series about Sandman. You know, there was a lot of stuff in the 90s that was, you know, kind of built into that whole subculture. And then White Wolf just just absolutely tapped the keg and started pouring beers for everybody in the game. Yeah, no, I I think (laughs) White Wolf is, is I think, probably one of the two or three biggest timing-related success stories in RPG history. I would say them and... Uh, the explosion of D&D 3rd Edition. Just just really perfectly timed. I, I'm not saying the games weren't worth the success. They certainly were. But I'd add, I'd add Pathfinder to that list. Okay, that's a fair fair point. But yeah, it, it's one of those things where it's just you have the good game that happens to come along at the exact right time. And it was really, it was really, really written in a different voice than a lot of RPG games were at that time, except for 
Thassa maybe was doing that that sort of Not thing. Not to the same extent. I mean, they were real. Uh, you know, White Wolf brought a real sense of style that had not really been seen before in a lot of RPGs. They they really kind of pushed that idea that the game mechanics were you know far less important than the than the telling of the story, and and that the RPG model was basically a form of art. And I think you know this had been said before, certainly, but I think. Uh, White Wolf was the ones that really kind of championed that cause. Oh, absolutely. I, I think one of the things that they did, and, and I enjoyed this as a writer, was the fact that so much of even the rule books were written first person in character. It not only added a great deal of flavor to the, to the text itself and a great deal of feeling to the world, but it allowed us, even as the game writers, to sort of keep things unclear. You were never entirely sure if something written even in one of the one of the official books, is this the actual truth of the world, or simply the truth as the narrator sees it? Yeah, the unreliable narrator is a, a fantastic trope. Uh, we used it all the time in the 40k roleplay lines. Actually, we would we would say, "Well, here's something really cool we want to talk about, but let's not use the voice of authority. Let's have you know some crazy guy make a report and then have some other person say oh, that's total crap." Yeah, exactly. At the end, and that was the, <laughs> and that's exactly the parallel I was drawing with. Fasa was the only ones that were really doing that at the time, and it both came Shadowrun. Both came out about the same time. Uh, no, uh, Vampire, was Vampire was uh, Shadowrun was eighty nine. Right. Vampire was ninety one. So that so by two years it, it beat it. Yeah, actually. so they were really really close together and both kind of doing the same thing. But Shadowrun was still in that mode of very very heavy rules mechanic, focusing on uh, getting your skills and your points and everything else. And Vampire really moved away from that to try to differentiate that, and it's had rippling effects all over the industry to the point where now we've got Fiasco, which is no di- which is no dice other than setting up the story itself. And uh, if you even count that as a role-playing game, which I do because you're playing a role, and then you've got Fate, which is just roll four dice, add your pluses and minuses, and a skill done. And it's really, really moved to telling a story over playing a game in some cases with these role-playing games. And White Wolf really kind of kicked that off. I well, think. you know, I, they definitely had a system. I mean, you can't just say that they, they were proposing diceless or anything like that. I mean, when we talk about LARPs and White Wolf, you can kind of go there. Oh, sure. They, they, but, they, didn't, you know, for the, they didn't go diceless, but there was definitely the sense that, that story and character... Mechanics were less mechanics. important. Yeah. Their, their combat section was like eight or ten pages at most, I think, in the first edition Vampire Rulebook, compared to every other game rulebook where the combat section's like, like sometimes half, half the book. book, right? No, what, what I was going to say is the thing about White Wolf's unreliable narrator, uh, and the thing that a lot of other games picked up moving forward, is I would argue, and I know that there are games that don't do it this way to a greater or lesser degree of success, but I would argue that for the most part, that's absolutely essential to horror role playing, and and the reason why it was such a big deal when they first tried to do horror in D&D, like with, uh, with Ravenloft, is the fact that horror requires an element of the unknown. It, it requires at least some sense of, I don't know what I'm dealing with. That is the antithesis of a system-heavy role-playing game. Well, you know, you've got a point, Ari, and I'm not saying you don't, but I, I do think there's, I disagree slightly with that. Okay. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna cover later probably in the in the the podcast talking about Call of Cthulhu. But 
for example, the sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu is a strong feature of that game, and it is basically a, a defining, I would say, feature of playing and the experience of playing Call of Cthulhu. No, I, I would not argue with that, no. So, so in a sense, I would, you know, for the most part, I agree with you that, you know, the unknown is, is really cool and we should not try to, you know, capture that mechanically. But at the same time, I think there are some games with some specific mechanics that work really well for building horror. Oh, sure. No, I'm, I'm not saying that, that horror can't have mechanics at all. I'm simply saying there has to be an element. With Call of Cthulhu, I mean, you're dealing with these Lovecraftian elder horrors. They are... The unknowable from beyond the stars. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's kind of... But they do have stats. Until and unless you begin statting out everything in detail, it, and even then to an extent, it's pretty much that unknowable is built in. When you're dealing with, as White Wolf coined the phrase, more personal horror... Uh, when you're dealing with, you are the monster, you uh, you are the vampire, the werewolf, the whatever. When you're dealing with, you have the perspective of the monster, and it's also a monster that is much easier to comprehend than Lovecraft's. Yeah, it's it's relatable horror, not cosmic horror. Yeah, then it gets to the point where, well, if I'm playing the monster, and I know absolutely everything about it, and about the world, well, yeah, I can still roleplay it where I'm trying not to be evil, but it's not really horrific. Or at least it's not its not as horrific as it could be, let me say. Well, we, I mean, we've kind of drifted into this, this topic, but I just want to, you know, clarify. We're basically at this point, you know, talking about what White Wolf did right. Yes. And I think they did a lot of things very, very well, very, very right, if you will. And, you know, you hit on one of them, you know, the idea of personal horror, and that was something that they carried through as a theme, I think, fairly strongly in all of their products. Personally, my favorite of their game lines was uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. I just loved everything about it. And you know, if I had to say one of the things I thought was, you know, the most right or the most interesting about, say, Werewolf, they built up this really cool idea of the, you know, cosmology, the spirituality of the guru. And, and how that worked with their, their culture and their beliefs. And this all kind of tied back into the actual game mechanics and the way that you played the game and the experience of the game because it, it promoted the idea of everyone working together as a pack within a, a sept, which was their you know, larger group. So it, it, was, it was a cool in-world thing that was about playing monsters, but it was also about playing different monsters working together, and they, they very elegantly tied that all together, in my opinion. I, I, that's one of the reasons why Werewolf is one of my favorite of the... Uh, well, it was absolutely my favorite of the, uh, the White Wolf lines. Oh, I would agree. The White Wolf games, for the most part... Well, we were just talking about how story trumps mechanics. I know that in D&D, for instance, while there are some groups that'll do it, for the most part, you don't really want a group adventuring together where one character is, you know, five levels lower than the other. It, it can be done, but it's not optimal. With the White Wolf games, I think there's much more of a sense of if the story throws these characters together, they can find a way to work together and be effective in the course of the story, even if they are dramatically different, or even dramatically differently powered mechanically. Dungeons and Dragons is a class and level system, and it's always going to have, it's always going to run up against that when you compare it to an, a, mo a much more open advancement type game, a very broad open advancement game like Werewolf or like Shadowrun, for example. Uh, sure, absolutely. I was going to say, I, I just just pointing to the uh, to the new uh, Mummy: The Curse. There's a number of models for how to put together a group for that game, and the idea of all the players playing mummies is actually 
listed as one of the least frequent models. Mm. The idea of a mummy and a number of human cultists, while there's obviously a big power discrepancy there, is the one that makes the most sense in uh, in the game world. Yeah, okay, I can see that. You know, while we're talking about this, I think one thing I should really also mention is um, just how beautiful those early books were. They had the Timothy Bradstreet art. Yes. They had those, if you look at the cover, I mean, just the cover for Vampire the Masquerade, it's like the perfect cover. The covers for the original Mage book, the cover for the original Werewolf the Apocalypse, those, you know, four claw slashes on it. I mean, I was like, when I, looking at that, like, they really cemented some of that early graphic design and trade dress appreciation that I have, have today. I was just, like, amazed at how well those books looked and how it tied the line together. I mean, you could instantly tell that was a White Wolf product, you know. Yeah, because they really brought that aesthetic across the board where each game kind of fed into each other in terms of having a cohesive aesthetic over the entire world of darkness, but each different game had its own unique feel at the same time that was still very cohesive both in art and layout and everything else. And and that artwork and that layout and everything else came together to create this theme, the style for the game that really informed everything about it, which was just another thing I really, really liked about it. But I want to go back to something else that Ari said earlier on, the the voice, in, uh, the in-character narration of a lot of the game book material. One of my favorite things, the thing that really hooked me on Vampire, aside from the fact that I was knee-deep in watching The Crow and Vampire, uh, Interview with the Vampire and all that stuff at the time, was when you go and read about the clans, not only does it have a description of the clan from a clan member at the very top of it, it has each other clan in that book's opinion of that clan it, yes, from a stereotypical yes. viewpoint and it really yeah, gives you I a like window a into the world and how these different clans interact and clash with each other I even uh, I just want to say you know as, as sort of as a brag I have some framed sketches by uh, Josh Timbrook who was one of the uh, early White Wolf artists for both Vampire and Werewolf nice you may know him as the guy that drew the uh, big werewolf on werewolf fight in the combat section of the original uh, werewolf the, uh, the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, I I'm a big appreciator of the uh, the artwork and the and the view and and like Daryl, you know, I also thought that the uh, the in universe things that they did with uh, with a lot of their their uh, their entries were very very cool. Knowing how the other clans thought about you or knowing what the other tribes thought about you, those were things I thought were really neat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously you can take it too far. There there are a lot of people who would say that by the end of the Old World of Darkness, the meta plot had kind of uh, snowballed out of control. Uh, well, you know, we that that's a nice segue into maybe talking about what didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say that at least for some people, I, I, I enjoyed the meta plot sort of as its own thing, but I didn't tend to, to watch, actually want to take it into account in most of my games. Okay, I, I'm trying to think of how to put this uh, politically. Um, <laughs> well, since I've got no horse in this, I'll go ahead and go first while you try to figure out a way. Uh, the meta plot problem to me was they went too far in defining everything anytime they put out any sort of splat book. If you pick up the, uh, it's like the New Orleans book, it sits there and defines everyone in that city and their personalities and character sheets, and you're like, okay. Why would I want to play there if everything's already set in canon? My players can't really have any effect on anything. The Justicars are already set. The Prince is already set. We already know all this stuff. How are they going to interact with these characters? 
And sure, you can do that, but it also kind of... You're talking about the concept of white space, that there really wasn't, you know, areas set aside for players to sort of tell their own stories. Yeah, and a lot of those, and, it's, and it seemed to go across the board. You can name a city, and someone, somewhere, it doesn't matter what city you picked to play in, that one person at the table who has every single book and has read them backwards and forwards is going to say, oh, well, actually, the Justicar in this city is such and such. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing I would say about the Metaplot, and I will say on, on, on our side of it, you know, there are certain things about Metaplots in general that are really cool, and there are certain things about uh, White Wolf's Metaplots that were really cool. But at the same time, um, what, what, what I think is the issue with the Metaplot is that the game book sort of, the, the, the core book gives you an idea of what the experience of the game is supposed to be like. The, what I like to call the adventuring paradigm. What are we doing as these characters, right? Like, Werewolf is a very strong adventuring paradigm. You are a guru, you're fighting against the worm, you know, typically Pentex, you know, and, and that's, that's basically your storyline, right? What the metaplot would do, though, is it would kind of come in and it, it would mess with some of those basic assumptions to the point where if you went to a werewolf game, maybe for the first time, or, or I'm just using werewolf, but, you know, it could be mage, it could be uh, vampire. Maybe vampire is the best one. But if I went to a vampire game for the first time, um, I would kind of have to spend a little time talking to the GM and say, well, okay, are we, are we doing the typical vampire thing or are we doing things that are affected by the metaplot? You know, it, it, in my opinion, it, it changed, it removed some of that accessibility. And that's all I'm going to say about that. No, I, I think that's a very good... Uh that's a good way to put it. Um, and, I, and I will point to episode three where Ross tells a story of him at a LARP where he's having a good time for an hour or two, and then all of a sudden a car drops at his feet that says Satchel Charge and kind of then kills his character. <laughs> so he tells the whole story in episode three of the podcast and our gaming horror stories. White Wolf LARPs are a totally different conversation, yeah. so let's just focus on the, the role-playing products right now. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did a lot of work on both the old uh, and new World of Darkness, both versions of Vampire. And they both have their strengths, um, but I think that the new one, I think Requiem, I think we did a little better about leaving some of that white space. Even for things that were defined, they were defined not as tightly, and they were defined as a, a lot more as here are options and examples as opposed to the way things are, capital A. I know that with, with the metaplot in the old World of Darkness, and this, this is what I was trying to get to earlier, is... Uh, White Wolf had a lot of really good fiction. It also had a lot of not-so-good fiction. <laughs> um, but That's a good way to put it, yeah. The fiction and the metaplot of the rule books were one and the same. What you wound up with was a lot of circumstances where in the quote-unquote official game world history... All, and this is what, what Daryl was saying, all this important stuff was done by named NPCs. It didn't leave room for the, for the player characters to actually shape things. I remember, and you'll have to forgive me, some, a lot of the details escape me at this point, White Wolf did a series of, uh, did, did, a, did a vampire chronicle, which began back in the, in the Middle Ages. There was a story, an, an adventure, if you will, that took place that heavily involved the clan Giovanni. And the way it was written, the PCs, the players, spent the bulk of the adventure's climax tied to chairs, watching as NPCs did stuff. That's not a very good sign. <laughs> yeah. And there, there, was, there was some great stuff, even in that book, there was some very atmospheric stuff, but 
this is where story over mechanics can actually be taken too far. Yeah, because we're still <laughs> supposed to have a good time, right? We're still supposed to be the, the agents of our own, you know, sort of change, you know, trying to tell our personal stories. Exactly. The, the game you know. writers have to remember that no matter how heavy the meta plot, no matter how structured is the polite way to put it, railroaded is the impolite way to put it, the, uh, the adventure might be... Choo-choo! All aboard the plot train! Yes, we, we, are, we are still writing a framework for somebody else's story. We are not writing our own story. The player characters should always be the star of the story. They are the main characters, not the supporting players. Well, if you can't... I mean, I think if we talk about White Wolf Metaplot, I think you cannot not mention uh, Samuel Hate. <laughs> Am I right? They, they they did eventually learn from that and kill him off, but yes. Yeah, but but I think you know, we have to, if we're going to talk about White Wolf Metaplot and what went wrong, I think we absolutely have to at least brush over this, this, this topic. Okay, I'm not familiar with this one off the top of my head. Ari, do you want to field it? Uh, <laughs> you're welcome to. You brought him up. Okay, <laughs> so basically White Wolf introduced as part of its meta plot, and I, I believe this was um, mid to late 90s. No, it was early 90s. It was earlier than that. It was Yeah, it was, it was early, because I was in college. Anyway, point being, they introduced this guy called Samuel Haight, and originally I believe he was a werewolf villain, and he was a kinfolk who wanted to become a real guru, so he ended up doing this uh, ritual where he stole a... Uh, a werewolf pelt and put it on and became a skinwalker where he was like an actual, now I'm an actual guru now. Um, but that wasn't the extent of his story. I mean, if it had stopped there, it probably would have been really cool, but it didn't stop there. And Samuel Hay started showing up in all of the other game lines, and he started stealing powers and things like that from all of the other supernatural creatures that were out there. So he'd show up in Mage, and he'd show up in, in, in Mummy and things like that. I mean... Uh, to be honest, I, I, I'm not like a super expert on this, and I'm kind of paraphrasing in a lot of ways, so Ari, if I get it wrong, please step in. I'm, I'm only familiar with, with, the, with the overall details myself, I, but uh, yeah, he, he kind of wound up as... He went around making a nuisance of himself in all of the game lines. He made a nuisance of himself, and, and, and I think at various points he, he was almost every single type of, uh, yes, yeah. of supernatural. He, he, he gained the powers of like all of them, and, and it became this... I, you know, to me, it was like a running joke. I was like, oh, God, what book is he done now? Um, but The Elminster problem. To, yeah, well, no, it was more than that, because he was a bad guy, and you were supposed to fight him, but you weren't supposed to win. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that ring true to you, Ari? That's the way I remember That's it. That's more or less... And, and that was the thing where I thought it's kind of like this is the antithesis of fun. This is a recurring bad guy who, does, who breaks all the rules that the player characters have to abide by. I mean, you, you like literally, it's telling you he has to be able to escape, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't like it. It was, it was to me, it was like the meta plot authors had their own pet NPC, you know, and they were kind of, you know, forcing me to put him in my game. So I wasn't, I wasn't too thrilled with the whole Samuel Hate thing, and I, and I know that the, I was not alone in this. Um, I think, Ari, what, do you, what, do you, what was the reaction to this meta plot that you remember? My memory is that, uh, and. and... I should know this, unfortunately, but it, it's been a while. I don't recall if this is something that actually happened in one of the game books or just something that sort of developed on the forums and took, a, took on a life of its own. But I remember there, there was a point where people were talking about how he had finally been killed and his soul round, wound up in the underworld from Wraith the Oblivion. 
and he was basically soul sculpted into an ashtray. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm reading right now the wiki online and that's that is but before that he fought like a Methuselah and like had become a mage and and just I'm like Jesus. You know like everything you know he could have possibly done, you know, to sort of make a noose of himself and all the other books he did. Yeah. Um but no, I, I remember this. I remember because he was a ghoul too. Apparently, I mean, geez. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> but no, pe- people people definitely celebrated his demise. So yeah, he was he was not not popular. So that that's an example of of the the meta plot that White Wolf did going going really wrong. I would say. So, so if we're talking about things that I feel that that White Wolf didn't didn't do as well as they could have, and this, this is this is not a popular opinion. And I'm I'm going to have some people yell at me for saying this. Mage. The entire game, like in general, yeah. Mage the the the. the now this is not a problem in 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 the new world of darkness. The new version of Mage solves this problem for me. It has its own problems, but it solves this one. But in the old world of darkness, Mage Mage the Ascension, it was a great game. I thought it was a fantastic game. I enjoyed the couple of times I played it. It never, for one moment, felt to me like it belonged in the world of darkness. Send your emails to <laughs> re marmel at. <laughs> it, was, it was. I mean, here's this here's this world where you're dealing with vampires and werewolves and all this horror stuff, and the mage game. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of traditions, the verbena and whatnot, but for the most part, they moved away from. It, it didn't feel occult. It didn't feel... Well, I'll, I'll, I can say this. You know, my, my mage character was a son of Ether, and I was sailing my steamship around the rings of Venus, so exactly. I didn't really and care what vampires and werewolves were doing. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a perfectly good game. That is a perfectly... I, I would love to play in a game like that. But it's not a World of Darkness game. I think the reason why I... I I'm going to say I don't agree, but I'm also going to say I don't agree out of ignorance, because... I really tried to get into Mage the Ascension, but no one around me wanted to play it. So all I ever did was read the rule book like once or twice. But I read some of the Mage novels, and the Mage novels fit in well because they had good authors who were controlling all the characters and everything in there. But I can I can completely see what you're saying because if you get into was it the technocrats? Technocrats? Yeah, technocracy. Yeah, yeah. They really didn't feel it because every single game had their enforcing the not. The masquerade, enforcing the masquerade using the TV tropes definition of it, where <laughs> where the regular people don't know what's going on. Uh, vampires self enforced the masquerade. The werewolves had delirium, and so on and so forth. And uh, mage had we have this one group of people that just go around and shoot you in the face with guns with no recoil and make no sound. Well, let's you know, let's let's make one thing very very clear right now. I think I think we all agree, Daryl, Ari, and myself, that we are not doing. You know, we we want to say first and foremost, we are all fans of White Wolf. And we're fans of their games. Uh, we are doing. You know, we are kind of analyzing what went wrong, but we're doing it from a clinical perspective. We're doing it from you know an analyzing perspective. We're not saying we hate anything. There's no hate here. Oh no, we're I, just I, saying, I, yeah. I, I I would play a game of Mage to the Ascension today. I just would want it to be its own thing. Right. Yeah, the, the way when I brought up this to Ross earlier, I also said, this is akin to diehard Star Trek fans talking about whatever the new movie or TV show is, and, or the old shows, and saying, okay, this is what this problem is, but wasn't this part awesome, and this was awesome, and this was, we love, we love the Borg storyline, best of both worlds, but we still have a problem with the naked now. 
Well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to say I think Ari's onto something with Mage. I mean, as you know, as I pointed out, you know, the, the Mage character I thought was the most interesting to me was the one that basically left all of the World of Darkness behind. And, and I, I, I always did feel Mage was a little, you know, kind of off on its own. You know, it didn't really interface very well with the, the rest of the World of Darkness. But honestly, though, I think that book was actually eclipsed by a much more larger missed opportunity, a much more larger failure to grasp exactly what we're talking about. I'm going to go out and say I think Wraith is possibly the worst core book for the Old World of Darkness ever published. Okay, well, thank you for taking the pressure of the emails off me. Yeah, no, that's no. This is this is me, and and I will explain again. I'm not. I, I want to say again, I'm not slamming White Wolf in general, but I'm saying I think okay for me, and this is why I feel this way. You you look at Mage, and it's a game about playing wizards, and they go around casting spells because that's what wizards do. And you look at a game about vampire, and they're you know they're it's about playing as a monster who sucks blood, and you you know it's, it has a lot to do with personal horror, and that's what it says on the cover. And Werewolf is a game about playing werewolves. Wraith, though, is a game about playing ghosts that has little to nothing to do about haunting people. And that's where it breaks down for me. I was like, wait, what? I'll tell you the one thing that always put me off of even really trying the game out was the mechanic where, oh, hey, the guy sitting across the table from you can take over your character. Well, the the idea of the shadows, I think, was was actually a pretty cool thing with the idea that someone else was playing your dark side. I, I got into that as an idea, as like a mechanic. It's a cool, it's a cool idea, not with the people I play with. Well, okay, <laughs> but it's, it's fair enough. But you know, here's here's really my problem with it, even more so than that, is that what it says on the cover is you get to play ghosts, and then when you when you read inside, it it like actively punishes you for trying to haunt the real world for having anything to do with the real world. Because there is this big monolithic organization that runs around like taking ghosts and turning them into things, and if you don't have the skills to protect yourselves from those people, you know, which you, you know, of course, that's where all your points would go if you actually wanted to haunt people and, you know, be a ghost. <laughs> uh, it, would, it would basically screw you, and you'd be screwing your whole party by not, you know, Because uh, I'm thinking about it, because I read, I, I read the, uh, the Wraith novel, the first one that came out, and I'm like, it's just dawning on me right now as you're saying this. I'm like, yeah, that entire plot wasn't about let, I got killed and I got murdered. Let me go get my revenge from the hereafter on the person that murdered me, which is the stereotypical ghost story from yeah. the ghost perspective. Who killed me? It I want to know. Why? It was about it was about two ghosts fighting each other. It was he's a new ghost and he's learning the ropes, and then there's this other ghost that's in power. So, so I'm curious to hear what Ari thinks about my. Expe- well, experience on that. My my experience with Wraith is fairly limited. I didn't get a chance to play it much. I didn't get a chance to go much past the initial core book. But yeah, it struck me from what I read. Uh, it struck me as though it would very likely fall into the same category for me that Mage did, which is a good game on its own, but not not a part of the World of Darkness and not really the equivalent of vampire or werewolf or or whatnot. Um, that it, it wasn't, as you say, it was it wasn't a game about playing ghosts. Not really. It, it was a, it was a it was a cool game on its in its own right, for its own thing. Well, there were certainly things about it I liked, like yeah. the idea of the fetters and the shadows. Those were really cool. But uh, but no, I I agree that it wasn't exactly what it said on the tin. Well, a good friend of mine is um, Harry Heckle, 
who used to work at uh, at White Wolf, and, and uh, he has some stories to tell about about those days. According to him, uh, the creation of Wraith was during one of Mark Reinhagen's most difficult periods. And I, I would say that that rumor, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly seems like it's plausible based on the content of Wraith. I can't speak to that. I've, you know, I've, I actually only met Mark personally years after he was no longer with White Wolf and I had, I had moved on mostly to fiction. So I can't really speak to any anything behind the uh, the behind the scenes motivations of anything that that's not a lot more recent than that. I, I don't know I don't know where or how or how anything happened as far as Wraith is concerned. And and I want to you know stress again I think it's a perfectly good game. I just don't think it's what the 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 go it's not what the ghost chapter of the World of Darkness should have been in my opinion. Um, well I, I definitely agree with you on that. Well, I think this actually leads to something else. I, I think we want to backtrack a little bit to the, the idea of the metaplot. And one book that you absolutely have to talk about when you're talking about metaplot is Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. <laughs> and you know why, don't you, Ari? Um, I, I can answer that question in a couple of different ways, yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> yes being one of the two ways? <laughs> <laughs> no, that... Um... So, for that, those that, 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 that you may not a, know... Go that ahead. book is a really good example of what I was just saying about books where, you know, there are some things in it that I really like. <laughs> and there are some parts of it that there's a reason that we, and by we I mean the writers, kind of shoved it aside and ignored it after the fact. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very entertaining book. Uh, but I can see why you would want to sort of sideline it. For those of you who may not know what is we're talking about, um, Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand was a, a source book for Vampire the Masquerade that got into the secrets of this organization in Vampire called the Black Hand, who are these assassins, basically. They work for the Sabbat. Is that right, Ari? Uh, well, it, it is and it isn't. Uh, the Dirty okay, Secrets well... book was talking about the Black Hand... Yeah, there, there, there was some bigger organization that wasn't part of the Sabbat that was actually behind the portion that was part of the Sabbat. Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, no, I, there, there was a later book on the Black Hand that did focus specifically on the uh, Sabbat faction that was okay. Uh, that was much better, and I think much, much better inter- integrated. Let's say. Well, the point, the the, the point where Thirty Six the Black Hand kind of kind of ran off the rails uh, for a lot of people is that. According to Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, one of the popular vampire clans, apparently all their powers have to do with like changing their shape and their flesh and things like that. The Shemisi, the clan. Yes, yeah. that's, that's the one. And according to Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, that is due to the fact that they're all aliens. Oh, God. No, I'm not making this up. Oh. <laughs> and Ari, I... am, am I right or wrong? Is well... that basically what the book says? I, I, I missed this part. Why? That, 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 is, that, that, that is true in a very broad sense. Um, <laughs> as I remember it, it wasn't that, that they were aliens exactly. It was that their shape-shifting, uh, the discipline of vicissitude, uh, yes, was, was, was effectively an extra-dimensional, semi-spiritual alien entity that was sort of corrupting yes. the vampires it was spread to from within. Oh. And... and, and that falls into that, that. That again. That is something that could make for a really interesting story. Taken, isolated by itself. 
Because I'm like, I, I can see how that might work, and it's, again, going back to a Lovecraftian sort of way, but that doesn't fit the theme of World of Darkness whatsoever, to me anyway. Yeah, because it's the world of darkness, not the dimension of darkness, right? I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I... You, you can do some fun stuff with it, but it definitely... It definitely fits better into the, uh... Hey guys, here's an interesting idea you might want to use in your camp, in your chronicle, as opposed to here's an official answer for the for the game's metaplot. Well, yeah, and so the, the, the point is that, yeah, that book is, uh, is, is widely regarded as as being a very unusual kind of uh, outlier when it comes to the old World of Darkness. Uh, another book that drew a lot of controversy, I remember, was I, I, I probably have the wrong clan, but I know it was one of the clan books, and I want to say it was Giovanni, that, was, that drew a lot of heat to White Wolf. Was, was that, is that the right one? Uh, I'm thinking of completely different not ones. that so, I yeah, can I recall. Was, I think it was the first one they black bagged. Uh, oh, no, that that would also have been the Shimisi book, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, where 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 the 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 uh, the uh, vagina dentata on the back cover? <laughs> <laughs> or is that not what we're uh, talking about here? I I don't, I don't know. And I'm we go to... we go from really classy Tim Bradstreet and these beautiful covers, and we go to we go to that. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, every every one thing, every one of these books, they had some good stuff in them, and they had some interesting ideas. I I don't know how familiar either of you are with the uh, the Vampire of the Requiem line, but uh, I, I I am familiar enough with it to know that I kind of not interested I, in it. You know, that's because it, it, it just it seemed like it took all the stuff that. I wasn't a big fan of in Vampire the Masquerade and kept it and got rid of all the cool stuff I liked. <laughs> well, we can, That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to talk about the New World of Darkness, um, but I think before we leave the Old World, I think there's at least one more book we ought to cover. Okay. Uh, possibly the most infamous White Wolf book made. And I say this only based on, you know, the number of threads I found searching the web, you know, discussing it, but uh, that would be uh, World of Darkness Gypsies. Yep. Oh... Um, that is, and, and my apologies to, uh, to Justin Achille if I am misrepresenting what he said, but as I remember it, that is the only book for whose existence Justin apologized. <laughs> and, and why did he apologize for that, Ari? For our listeners who may not be aware. Okay, basically take every... Every stereotype, every, every cultural and personal stereotype of gypsies that people have been trying to get away from for years and build an entire book of powers and family groups based around those. It's, it's fair to say it's, it's culturally offensive in some ways. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I, I don't for one minute think it was ever meant to be. I, well, I don't, I don't, we're not saying that. It's, you know, we're, <laughs> unintended consequences probably, you know, I, I think it's fair to give them the benefit of the doubt on that, too. Uh, they weren't, you know, intentionally saying, ha-ha, let's, you know, mess with the gypsies. I think they just forgot to do some, some basic due diligence on it. They, they, did their, they probably did their research on the culture and its history and built an entire what they thought was a fictional thing based on this, not and possibly may not have realized that, there are still, and they don't, uh, Romani are still around. 
because even the even the term gypsy is considered offensive too, like, yeah. like a racial slur. Yeah, um, I, I'm, think, I'm thinking that's probably what might have happened. I have no clue if that's actually what happened, but that that's pretty much the the closest explanation I can think of for why anyone would do something like that is just pure complete ignorance. And you know the funny thing about that is if if, if you hop companies and go over to uh, to TSR at the time you had the Vistani in Ravenloft who yes. were very obviously based on traditional yes. stereotypical gypsies but the difference there is we're talking about a fictional land first a, of all. A, a fictional land in a game that is based on fantasy and cultural tropes where they have also changed the names and the details enough that they aren't directly referring to somebody who's still who's alive today, right? Um, so it's it's inf- it's like an influenced by, but it's not trying to make a a statement about exactly. No, that's well. So I, I think that's all I really wanted to to say before we moved on from the old world of darkness is just to to touch on on uh, that particular book. Well, I I, I so, do want to reiterate what you said before, which is that you know we we've gotten to talking about the places where White Wolf went wrong, but. Uh, you know that that is for the most part a significant minority of the books. I mean, most of them really did. Even you know, I'm not saying they were perfect, but most of the line really did build on what they wanted it to build on. I think uh, if you look at the old world of darkness overall, just as a unit, it is probably thematically one of the most successful RPG worlds ever put out. Oh, successful! Uh, you you cannot. I don't think you can argue against it being one of the most successful. It was, uh, you know, and this is both financially and creative. This well, yeah, is definitely I mean, something we're going to get into. But White Wolf, yeah. you know, was one of the giants in the industry based solely on the old world of darkness. Yeah, but I, but I mean, even just in terms of a creative thematic level, I really think far more of the books held to the theme and mood than didn't. You know, that that, that that's an accomplishment there. I, I I just don't want it. You know, I'm not I'm not sitting here slagging on the company that gave me my start. In other words. No, no, no. We're not. That's not the purpose of this podcast think, at all. But. I think we. I think we've talked about what four or five specific books in a line that had hundreds yeah, exactly, of source yeah. books. So it's it's yeah. fair to say that White Wolf's missteps just happen to be very memorable. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's all that the. Uh, that's that's really the reason why we're discussing it is because they were very memorable and, and, and in some cases influential. I mean, you can. It, it's it's fair to say you can point to you know Gypsies as a good example of what not to do. You're right. A lot of their books were great, and I think we, you know, I, I, I tried very hard to point out you know, at the very start of this that I'm a huge fan of the, you know, world, you know, Vampire the the Apocalypse, and I just loved like everything they did for it, with the exception of Samuel Hate. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're we're fans. We're absolutely fans of what they did, and we're we're uh, we're acknowledging that there were you know both great successes uh, and you know some stumblings along the way. Which brings us, I think, this is probably a great time to talk about, uh, you know, White Wolf had a pretty major shift in their game lines because they had tied everything together into one single overarching universe, which was called The World of Darkness. And they decided to bring that all to an end about 2005, was it, Ari? Oh, I think it was a little before, though. Was it 2003, 2004? So, they, so in early 2000s, they decided to bring The Old World of Darkness to an end. And the goal was to to do, to wrap up all the basic storylines and then launch a new World of Darkness, which would allow them to reintegrate all of their basic ideas and functions while still allowing them more freedom 
to sort of you know take those things in new directions. Is that a fair way to put it, Ari? I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I also think it was along the lines of like an addition change in say D and D, where they were also trying to fix some problems with the rules that had come up as well. That's why the generation thing was less emphasized in Requiem. Yeah, mechanically, one of the neat things about the New World of Darkness was that they actually... Okay, so in the Old World of Darkness, you had Vampire, which was its own game, and Werewolf, which was its own game. And, you know, everything was its own game, but they had ways to work together, but it was kind of a kludge. And There was no game balance between editions well, whatsoever. It's, you know, it, it, yes. And that's what's going to happen when you create a bunch of different games that all kind of take place in the same universe. And I, I know of which I am talking, honestly, because, <laughs> you know, 40k roleplay... Followed the same, uh, <laughs> followed the same basic paradigm. So the new world of darkness. What they decided to do was they were going to create a world of darkness role-playing game, and then create basics, basically create setting books for the same game for each of the uh, original lines. So the, the one of the first products of the new world of darkness was simply called the world of darkness, I believe. And it was the basic mechanics, it was the basic core system that they would then use as a foundation to build off everything else, which, in my opinion, was a very smart move. And you could play that as a game unto itself if you wanted to play human protagonists. It had the full gamut of, here's how you can reach the basic stock human character if you want to... And you can play those in the world. So, sure, you're not going to be able to compete necessarily with vampires and werewolves and whatnot, but... You can still... It's not nearly as big of a gap as there was in the old World of Darkness. Now, this caused quite a bit of controversy. Uh, And again, I'm kind of saying these things that we all know out loud, just in case our listeners don't. Uh, But uh, this caused quite a bit of controversy in in a a number of cases, not only with some diehard fans of the old World of Darkness, but I would say probably the biggest impact that it had was actually on White Wolf's LARPing community. Oh, this was about the same time they they had the, the Camarillo fiasco, wasn't it? Uh, this is all kind of tied in with that, yeah. So there was this massive worldwide organization called the Camarilla, which was the organization of LARPers who played White Wolf games. Uh, primarily Vampire. And I'm going to step in for just a moment to explain. Anytime any word from World of Darkness is spoken by Arya Ross, take their pronunciation over mine because I learned these words in writing and I mispronounced pretty much everything in that word. Well, to be fair, I learned them in writing too. <laughs> But you guys seem to be agreeing a hell of a lot more than I do. I am not an expert pronunciator of, of White Wolf terms, so uh, there in, you go. In fact, uh, Camarilla or Camarilla is a debate you still find online today. But the, um, the point is is that the Camarilla, or the Camarilla, whoever, they, they were this big organization, and they were vociferously opposed to changing to the New World of Darkness, so much so... And and the and this is really important because they were actually like an, a semi-official arm of the company in some ways of White Wolf, and because they were so viciously opposed to this, they actually like disbanded the organization. Now I, I, I'm paraphrasing, and there's a lot of you know subtle nuances and things here. Um, you can probably look it up on Wikipedia to find out like you know more of the story. Um, but it, it's important to make a note that this was a a big stone being thrown into the water, and there were a lot of ripples from that effect. As I remember it, uh, I, I was never heavily involved in the LARP or Mind's Eye Theater aspect of things, so I can't really speak to it with any authority. But uh, as I recall, that is that is basically the, the upshot, yes. And there was another big fiasco with that as well. I'm not sure about the timeline, where it falls in terms of uh, the camera disbanding and whatnot, but around the same time, after, I think it was after it disbanded because it was 
rebranded as an official part of White Wolf as their official LARP community. And then after a little while, for the longest time, you had, sure, you paid membership dues to get your packets and whatnot, but there wasn't any sort of real, no one really enforced any sort of guidelines or payment on this. And then all of a sudden, White Wolf said, okay, if you want to run a a vampire or werewolf, LARP, any sort of World of Darkness LARP, and you take money from players in any way, shape, or form, you have to pay us a licensing fee now. And this included people who just, okay, if members want to donate some money so we can rent out this location for it, that would have been considered a, in White Wolf's view, for-profit, so therefore you must give us a licensing fee because you're making money on our product. And it created a huge backlash, and they ended up backing down from that, I think. Well, beyond the, the idea of the, that the, these things happen in the LARPing community, in the, in the RPG world, um, you could tell that it was a New World of Darkness product because they changed the sort of subtitle. Like, it was Vampire of the Requiem now, and it was uh, Werewolf the Forsaken, and they had kind of abandoned those old uh, subtitles so that you could, you could definitely tell someone, we're running a Werewolf the Forsaken game, not a Werewolf the Apocalypse game. And for many of them, there were substantial differences. I mean, they were definitely different games. Absolutely. I, yeah, but there were beyond just the name. There were yes. many, many differences. Uh, although uh, I will, I will say that you know, v- Vampire the Requiem was the first one out of the gate. Uh, we were writing that concurrently with the people who were writing the uh, core rule book. There was still some question as to how different things were going to be. So, I do have to say, I'm, I'm very proud of a great deal of Vampire the Requiem. But it is not as different from Masquerade as I would have liked it to be, given my own uh, my own druthers. Well, I'm curious, Ari. What in what ways would you have liked it to differ more? The primary example I bring up, um, and this this is just one of those things where it would have affected both the mechanics and the story, which is why I use it as my example. The idea of clan weaknesses, which were a huge part of both Masquerade and Requiem. You know, like in, in Masquerade, the uh, the Ventru could only feed off of one particular blood type, or... Malkavians were insane, Nosferatu were ugly. Yeah. I really wanted to not tie those to clan in Requiem. I wanted to tie them to disciplines. Hmm. The more points you had in a given discipline, the worst that, the worst that discipline's related side effect was. Yeah, that would have balanced things a lot better, in my opinion, in terms of in terms of how the like meta plotty sort of it seems more thematic to me. To I, I would have thought so. Just just for instance, uh, you know, obfuscate when you can turn invisible or look like other people. Well, maybe that's the power that, along with along with the power of changing how you look, that's the one where you also stop showing up in mirrors and and, and that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, I I, we, I I didn't develop it into a into a coherent list. We, we never went that route. But that's the kind of change I would have liked to have made. Something that is yeah, the enhancing strength gives you a short fuse, or something like that. Yes, exactly. Hmm. And 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 that is that I, I would have liked to have at least explored in that direction. But uh, you know, it didn't happen. Well, there were you know, as as we've talked about with the old world, the old world of darkness, there were several books that were quite good in the new world of darkness. Um, and I'm going to pimp a couple of them right now. Um, the Thirteenth Precinct is a fantastic book. Uh, if you are a fan of doing things with 
police, like a police procedural, and you know, introducing horror elements. It's it's a great book, and uh, from people like myself and Jason Marker, uh, and we just live and breathe that kind of stuff. Thirteenth uh, Precinct was, was a fantastic product, and then on top of that, I mentioned my friend uh, Harry Heckel was uh, someone I'd worked with uh, a few times, and Harry uh, was part of a project called Orpheus, uh, which was a short intentionally short game line for the New World of Darkness that is a really interesting take on it, it's not only dealing with like the afterlife but it's also kind of doing a, an X-Files kind of approach to that and uh, I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in, in looking at like some of the, the, the things that the New World of Darkness did right uh, def- definitely take a second look at, at Orpheus Okay, before we get too far into this, I need another round. Is everyone else okay? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called recursions that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there. And we're back at the You All Meet in a Tavern podcast, episode 5. We are talking to Ari Marmel, novelist and game designer for many different games, including uh, quite a few for White Wolf, which happens to be the topic of discussion right now as we're talking about horror games tonight. And uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up since we're starting to transition from old World of Darkness talking into the new, new World of Darkness is I said something earlier that I, I really want to explain. I said I wasn't that big of a fan of Vampire the Reckoning, and it has, I want to make this clear right now, it has absolutely nothing to do with the game design or the game mechanics. They were light years better because the company itself and the game designers in telling this, these type of stories and creating rules for this type of world had a, over a decade more experience in doing so. So the rules were a lot tighter and a lot better and a lot more balanced. But one of the biggest problems I had with Vampire the Requiem was it took out something that I really, really loved in Vampire the Masquerade, which was when I played Vampire the Masquerade, from the second I opened up that book and I read those clan descriptions, I'm like, oh my god, this is awesome. I can totally, and immediately I could read the clan descriptions from in character and read the mechanics and read what all the other clans said about them, and characters would just pop into my head. It's like, oh, I want to make a character like this. Oh, and one like this, and one like this. And I was making, like, computer hacker intelligent bruja, <laughs> who is not, that's not a bruja thing. And so on and so forth. I was creating all these different ideas in my mind, and I couldn't get them onto character sheets fast enough. And when I read Vampire the Requiem, I was reading through the bloodlines and the, uh, um, because I got rid of clans weren't really clans anymore. Well, no, they, 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 had, they had clans and, and covenants. And, oh, then, and then bloodlines were, were sub-clans, basically. Yeah, and 
every time I would read it, I'm like, uh, okay, that doesn't sound interesting to me. Next one. Uh, next one. And, and none of them really resonated with me, and that's a personal problem I had with it. I know a lot of people who resonated with those clans and bloodlines and covenants a lot. But for me, it just, it, it felt wrong. That's one of my biggest problems I had with Vampire the Requiem. Well, I, I, I think with Requiem, you know, they, we, we, they slash we <laughs> reduced the clans from 13 to 5. And there, there are both good and bad things about that. Um, and it also seemed like the, they, the ones they kept were the clans that I didn't really like as much. The ones they cut got shifted over to Bloodlines, if at all. Bloodlines and expansions, like, a year later or something. Well, and that's, and that's the thing, is if you're only going to have five clans, then each one has to be a much broader archetype. And that, again, is, is, not a, is, is both and neither a good or bad thing. It works for some people, not for others. I mean, that's, that's just, just, a, just a flavor thing. So, yeah, there's certainly you know, uh, no reason why it has to work for everybody. What I, what I am fond of as far as uh, Requiem, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier, is that Requiem, especially beyond the core book, was more about giving the storyteller options as opposed to this is the official behind the you know behind the scenes history or secrets or whatnot. Uh, I was saying that the whole the whole black hand thing earlier with with the with Clan Samisi would have been fine as here's an interesting idea you can do if you want to, but it didn't fit as an official. This part is the, of the official history. word. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in in Requiem, there is a group called Seven, which is vampires who hunt other vampires, and no one is entirely sure why. Well, they put out a Seven source book. What that source book is is three different mini source books. Seven could be this, or it could be this, or it could be that. Which is something that uh, White Wolf had done previously with the Gehenna book. Yes. Which is you had five different endings, which, by yeah. the way, I loved that aspect of that. Well, they, I think this is them learning, you know, how to put in white space and to offer Game Master's options as to how to tell their, their own story. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to my point, I love the rules in the game. They did a really, well, you did a really, really, really good job with fixing a lot of, I don't want to even say problems, but fixing a lot of kind of soft areas of the original World of Darkness by tightening things up a lot in the new World of Darkness. It's just, my, my problems come pretty much solely from the theme. And, you know, lest anybody get the wrong impression, uh, Ari is absolutely a great game designer. He's absolutely a great fiction writer. And uh, both Daryl and I are fans of his work. Oh, yes. It's a real pleasure to have you on with us tonight, Ari. Thank you very much for showing Yeah. So before we, you know, get too far uh, away, I mean, because well, White Wolf has kind of taken over the podcast at this moment. <laughs> and there's a lot to talk about. If you want to talk about White Wolf, I mean, there's just, we could go on and on about some of their later game lines like Skyon and Exalted. I mean, Exalted alone is probably worth a whole podcast. But let's, uh, you know, let's, let's instead, we've, we've kind of talked about the old world of darkness. We've talked about the new world of darkness. And let's just wrap up, I think, with a brief discussion of where White Wolf is now. Uh, well... Well, it's on its path now, isn't it? Yeah, White, White Wolf sort of is and isn't now at all. <laughs> a good way of putting it. White Wolf, you know, quite some time ago, was uh, bought... CCP. CCP. And White Wolf essentially became a, a sub-studio. Yes. And it was focused largely on vampire MMORPG, which is still in, uh, in production. 
this was rather infamously announced by the CCP head of marketing at the time, uh, Ryan Dancy, uh, at a press conference. Mm-hmm. That and that hasn't come out yet, has it? No. Okay. I was about to say I thought I would have heard something about that. <laughs> no, the MMO is is still in production, as far as I'm aware. But eventually, you know, for a while, CCP was still putting out uh, uh, role-playing game books for World of Darkness, but it really wasn't their focus. And, and again, Ryan Dancy made this extraordinarily clear in a, in a very infamous... I, I encourage you to go find it on the web somewhere because it's kind of jaw-dropping for a marketing guy to say these things. But Yeah. There you go. Um, what, so what eventually happened is several of the old White Wolf guys uh, formed Onyx Path, which is a new company, and licensed and or bought various games that White Wolf had owned. Including, I think the newest is uh, the Scarred Lands. Is that right? They just announced that. Yes, they they've gotten hold of the Scarred Lands setting uh, for it. It was for D and D. I don't know if it'll be D and D Pathfinder, its own system this time around. But they do have the property back. Yes. I I am so excited about that because I loved the Scarred Lands. I thought it was one of the coolest settings for Dungeons Dragons 3.5. I really 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 liked it. I liked just about everything about it. So. I'm excited to see what happens with that. I I I had a number of <laughs> I had a number of plot lines that I had hinted at in a book here and there that I never got to execute. So uh, who knows? Maybe. Well, I I really hope they get Richard Lee Byers to write some more fiction for the setting because I really liked his trilogy. So I think at this point it has been long enough that this is no longer needs to remain a behind the scenes thing. But uh oh, you heard it here first, folks. There was supposed to be another Scarred Lands fiction trilogy, and I know this because it was going to be mine. Oh, that would have been really cool. Missed opportunity there. What was it going to be about? Well, that would require probably more time than we have. <laughs> okay. But um, What's the elevator pitch? <laughs> let, let, let me instead do it this way. Were either of you familiar with the Serpent and Fora trilogy of adventures that they published? Um, it was the, the three modules. specifically. Okay. Well, I had introduced a background character uh, in the second one, Ilkuthra, the Autumn King, who was basically a druidic lich. The trilogy was going to involve him and certain secret connections to the Titans, and it wasn't going to be... It wasn't going to quite cross the line into world-shaking, but, you know, it wasn't going to be like a a big event where the setting has changed forever because I don't like to do that in tie-in novels but it was about as close to that as you can come without actually changing people's campaigns huh uh, and I would I'm not going into a lot of detail right now for because you might actually write it again uh, well I don't think it's likely I would ever write the trilogy of fiction but I might be able to revisit the story concepts cool um, if I end up working on Scarred Lands again and if the people involved are listening to this, you may take that as a hint. <laughs> um, but uh, no, the other reasons I'm not going into it is, one, because it would involve uh, explaining to a lot of the listeners a huge chunk of the Scarred Lands background. And two, uh, frankly, it's it's been almost ten years, and I don't recall all the details. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's fair. You know, I... I, after we talk about you know White Wolf, it, 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 you know you you're right. It's it's basically gone, and 
Onyx Path is sort of picking up the torch and moving moving forward with it. But it's kind of like you know nowadays we have we have a, a FASA company in 2013, but it's nothing like the FASA of 1993. I feel like as gamers we should all be aware that a titan of the industry has passed on. That this you know I I want to say a monolithic feature of over 20 years of gaming. And it's it's kind of gone, and I feel that absence. Every year I go to Gen Con, and I look for the White Wolf booth, and it isn't there. I feel that absence. And, you know, it's it's something that I think we as our role-playing gamers, we need to, you know, we need to kind of remember what it used to be like when that was... When, when you had, you know, certain tiers of gaming, and, of course, Dungeons & Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, they were the top tier. And right below them was, you know, White Wolf. And that was true for for many many years for like you know over uh, over two decades. Pretty much all pretty much all the nineties and a good chunk of the two thousands. Yeah, so it's like I said, I I definitely you know I I feel their absence, and I hope that uh, I hope that that I am not alone. Oh no, definitely not. I you know I I hope Onyx Path can take up a good chunk of that. I know that like I said, the Onyx Path guys are some of the old uh, White Wolf guys, so. As you, as you say, the titan of the industry is gone, but it's you know it does actually have offspring. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, and I'm not saying I'm not saying you know that we're never going to see more World of Darkness. Oh, we, oh sure, we obviously sure, are. Sure. We obviously are like you know with Werewolf 20 year uh, anniversary. I just picked it up and it's it's gorgeous. I love it. And and that brings me to one of my points of Onyx Path. It, Onyx Path doesn't feel like a game design company, and it feels like they're still building. Yeah, because almost all of their releases at this point, with just a couple of exceptions, uh, such as I, I believe the Mummy game that you worked on was original, that just came out uh, what last year I think or this year. Uh, it came out this year. This year, earlier this year. But beyond that, pretty much what they're doing is here's a Kickstarter for a reprint, a 20th anniversary reprint of Vampire, the Vampire the Masquerade, of Werewolf the Apocalypse, of Mage the Ascension, and third edition of- uh, Exalted, for example. They they did a lot of reprints to get started, but no, Mummy is a completely brand new game. I mean, it is, it is, it is far and away different from the, with the possible exception of Changeling. I don't know if there is another game where the New World of Darkness version is this different from the Old World of Darkness version. I covered that for the site when it was a Kickstarter, and it just reading the description sounds entirely different than the original mummy and i i need to give props to the to the primary game designer on on the new mummy ca Suleiman. he really came up with something different now that may also make it more of a niche game than some of the others are I, i'm not it may not appeal to everybody but it is definitely a different but still very water darkness feeling play experience well, that's that's cool, and I'm I'm excited to see where uh, where we go with that. There's a new version of Demon coming out eventually, and which that was a game that was terribly underappreciated in my opinion. I loved that original book, and I, it felt like nobody knew about it. What's this book called again? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm ki- I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. And, and and then, without going into details on anything that has not been announced, uh, there is more original product uh, in the pipeline. So that's something I'm very, very glad to hear because I actually put in my notes is that uh, it feels like all Onyx Path is doing at this point is just rehashing old stuff and not doing anything new, which hearing that they've got these announcements that I somehow missed and stuff in the pipe 
that's going to be original, that gives me a lot of hope for the world of darkness again, because I really miss having new content. As much as I love the original stuff, and love seeing it new deluxe editions. But... They've got a real hard road ahead of them, though, if they want to recapture... You know, if, if they want to reach the same levels of White Wolf, I, I think that's going to be a, a big challenge. But it's it's really exciting to hear that they are moving forward. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not even sure if if reaching the same level as White Wolf is even feasible in the current market. It's just the market itself and the, uh, the zeitgeist have changed. But if they can even be successful enough to just be one of the big names in, in the current market, I would be thrilled with that. That would, be re- that would be cool. I would love to see that happen. And speaking of big names in the market, uh, if we take the Wayback Machine a little further uh, and we want to talk about horror games... Uh, TSR's we... Ravenloft. Yeah, let's crank back to the 80s and <laughs> talk now, about I, Ravenloft. I got a question for you guys. Have either of you played or run the original Ravenloft module? I, I have. Six. I got you the have... Sun Sword. Ooh. And I defeated... Uh, I have I've not played him. or run the original. I, I am familiar with it. I have read through it multiple times. Uh, I'm on the same level as Ari on this one. I have not played it, but I've read it many times in preparations to run it. It just never got together. This module, every single time anyone does a, whether it's D&D specific or across the board, best greatest modules ever written. This one is almost always in the top five, if not one or two. So I wanted to talk about what was it about this module that resonated so much with people? Why was it such... Because I know it was... It kind of was something really different from what was going on at the time in D and D. What really was it? It uh, it brought uh, it brought you know the a lot of the gothic horror to D and D. It brought the tropes of you know the old style vampire Dracula to D and D. It's like it, a hammer it, horror film as a dungeon. Yeah, and it it also brought a lot of flexibility that adventure modules didn't have uh, at the time. Because it wasn't a point A to point B to point C to point D. Here, here's the map. You, you're going to go this way when you define the thing. No, there was... Cause I, I seem to remember that was the thing was Strahd could show up on almost any point, Yeah, there, right? there, there, there was some randomness to it, even on the DM side. It, it, was, a, it was a... Depending on how, how the fortune teller... The fortune telling went at the beginning of the game would determine where you could find Strahd and, and what his objective was and, and that sort of thing. And... It's been done since then, and I would even, I would even say it's been done a couple of times better since then. But it would not have been done without that one. That that one, if it wasn't the first, it was certainly the first big, uh, big release to do anything like that. And another thing that I always loved about the Ravenloft module was the fact that, for as far as I can tell, again my timeline may be a little bit off because I was six years old when the original module came out. I wasn't quite into gaming yet. But it seemed like it was the first major module where the antagonist was a three-dimensional character. He had a history, he had a backstory. He was, in some ways, even this may have come in a little bit later with the novels and the full setting, but he was even presented in that original module with a backstory that made him, even though he was unequivocally an evil character and an antagonist, he was still a little bit sympathetic. And that's something that you never saw before then, am I right? Um, Very rarely. And you, by the way, you damn kids, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, again, you you didn't see it too often in D anD D before then. I, I I won't go so far, so far as to say never, but it certainly wasn't a common thing. A lot of his sympathetic background did come in later, but you're right; there was a great deal of it even just to start with. 
Because they did tell the original background story of uh, murdering his brother to steal his wife. I, I, I think they did. I, I think so. I mean, it was it was fairly fairly. Yeah, it was like no, two paragraphs. Yeah, fairly non-detailed but. at the time, but but I think it was in there. Yes. And then, so TSR took the success of this adventure, and they, when they had this big sort of explosion of campaign settings uh, in the 80s, they decided that Ravenloft would become its own campaign setting and would be, it would actually feature horror as one of the main focuses of its particular niche. And speaking of something very unique, I actually do know the timeline on this one. Every single other setting, for the most part, it may have played with the tropes some. Uh, Dragonlance came first, for sure. And Forgotten Realms was a lot different than, say, Greyhawk or Star or any of those. But it was the first one other than Spelljammer Beat It by a Year, where it came out with something that was just completely different than that standard trope of, like, Tolkien-esque fantasy or heavily Tolkien-inspired fantasy. It did something that was completely different from that. It was, again, Spelljammer came first, but Spelljammer giant hamsters on a sailing ship in the stars. <laughs> There's a lot of things about Spelljammer that I really, really like, and I think we should have a discussion about that sometime. But but Ravenloft is definitely distinct. And like Spelljammer, it had something that was really unique in that it was sort of a meta setting in which you could bring characters in from almost anywhere. You could bring characters from Greyhawk or the Forgotten Realms. And it had links and connections to all the other campaign settings, which kind of made all of the Dungeons & Dragons worlds feel connected. Because a lot of the Dark Lords were brought in from other settings, even if they weren't characters in those settings in the first place. Absolutely they were. Now, you know, the funny thing about that is, on the one hand, that that is a strength of the setting when it's used properly. On the other, I found, just in my personal experience, at least for me, Ravenloft campaigns, whether I was running them or playing in them, always wound up feeling more satisfying and more atmospheric if we removed the other world visitor aspect and just played natives of the setting, because when you do that, it ceases to become, how do I escape from here? And it becomes more of a just, how do I survive? This is how the world is. It's an awful place. What am I doing here? I actually, Aria, I agree with you that that probably builds for a superior experience. But I will say that, like, one of the cool things about Ravenloft, just like the, you know, one of the points of, of doing Ravenloft as opposed to something else, is because you can bring in some of those things you love the most about other settings. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, Lord Soth from Dragonlance. Oh, sure. He was freaking awesome. And having him as part of Ravenloft, I thought, was a masterstroke. He was the only character in the history of Ravenloft that beat the Dark Powers. Uh, I think Azalin actually later did, too. Uh, nope, he he never he ended up he came damn close, but he never quite did what he was trying to. I think that was uh, right when again White Wolf was taking over. Well, Soth, Soth, but Soth is definitely the pioneer for sure. He Soth thoroughly beat them though. It was basically because the way the dark for those who aren't that familiar with Ravenloft's setting, the dark powers are this mysterious force. It may be one thing, it may be multiple things, it may not be an entity, it may be something else. It was very very vague, but. The core of it was, it's DM Fiat as a game mechanic in the world, almost. And it's, these powers bring these horrible, horrible people into this plane, into this demi-plane of Ravenloft, and create their own little country for them. And the rules of how things work in that country are built around Twilight Zone-style punishments for their own hubris and evil. 
for example, uh, oh, crap, the name fell out of my head already, the Lich guy. As, as, Azalin. As, well, there's Azalin, and Vecna is also a Dark Lord, so, you know. Well, I mean, Vecna became a Dark Lord for a time, and he broke, that was the big second edition ending thing, I believe. But there was the, multiple Liches, both. is what I'm getting at. But, but uh, Azalin was the one I was specifically thinking of, where his power was, he was the greatest mage of all time in his original world, and his thing was learning new magics and learning new spells, so he gets, and he wanted to conquer his area, and he got the biggest chunk of Ravenloft all to himself in terms of volume-wise, and he is the most powerful wizard in all of Ravenloft. But he cannot and learn he, anything new ever. Bingo. That's his punishment. Uh, Strahd fell so in love with the, his brother's betrothed that he set up a plan, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's been a while, I'm not quite sure on the specifics, but he ended up murdering his brother to steal his brother's wife. Uh, they weren't married yet at this point, so his brother's about to be wife on his wedding night. Went to marry him himself, and she killed herself. And he was distraught by this because he was so in love with this woman. And so he, they pulled the plane over, and he pretty much started the Ravenloft world, which is why it's named after his castle, Castle Ravenloft. And he was so in love with her and tortured, and the plane occasionally reincarnates her. And he think, and he tries to win over this reincarnation of his beloved. And he fails every single time. And it just, it's that carrot right in front of him where he can never ever find any sort of peace or accomplishment because he can come only so close. And every single time it, she comes up in some new way that makes him think, maybe this time. And it never happens. And every single one of the planes in Ravenloft had their own Dark Lord who was tortured in this exact same way in these great ironic punishments and for that's, their own crimes. That's a big part of what made the setting really cool and unique and, and, and really work in some ways is that because the Dark Lords are, in, in a lot of ways, the Dark Lords are really well done. And the, the nations that they are in charge of and the idea that it's a prison... Uh, they, there were many facets of the setting, I think, that are, are brilliant. Um, I won't say I love everything about it, but there are certainly lots of little pieces of, of uh, Ravenloft that I think are are very well designed. Well, it's like I was saying earlier about the werewolf, uh, the white wolf clans, where some of them are really, really appealing to me, and some of them aren't. Some of the nations in Ravenloft are really appealing to me, some of them not so much. But I, I just absolutely love it. And I was also kind of a... Because I know growing up, pretty much everyone ran the kitchen sink campaign, where it's okay, Ravenloft is this country, and Forgotten Realms is this country, and Greyhawk's <laughs> on this country, and it's all on the same planet. And you could, and you would mix and match all these campaign settings together. Well, Ravenloft was like that. Each of the little countries in Ravenloft were pulled from another plane. So you'd have one where it was really low medieval technology, and you'd have ones that were like Renaissance-level yes. technology. So... You could play with those and, and, and move the characters from one to the other to experience the different things. One thing I loved about Ravenloft, too, was that it was transitory. That you could have people visit it and then return to their normal world, and you didn't really need to explain too much about why. And it was made, that's what made it perfect for like a Halloween game. Like If yes. you, wanted, if you yeah. had your own D&D campaign and you were like, hey, let's have a cool special you know, Halloween-themed game, and we'll all go to Ravenloft and then come back. And you could just do that. The classic weekend and weekend of horror. And of course, campaign. the thing is, once you do that to this to, to to your gaming group, from then on, any time, any time in any campaign, you so much as mention mist, 
<laughs> they freak. Yeah. yeah, good point. I've loved Ravenloft since I discovered it. Um, it was definitely the first time I really got the impression that uh, the guys at TSR really embraced what I said earlier about you have to have something unknown to really make horror work. Because that's another thing. And, and the, 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 the powers themselves. The dark powers, yes. Which is why, you know, one of the uh, one of the later Ravenloft novels actually tried to define them. And my understanding is that even the uh, even the guy even even TSR itself considered that novel to be non-canonical after after it came out. And you know we've mentioned that you know that there's game fiction that kind of supports these these horror games, kind of builds on them. I mean Ari's written game fiction, and you know White Wolf, as we mentioned earlier, had had many many books about it. I would say Ravenloft actually had a pretty high percentage of pretty decent books uh, for its particular. Uh, world. Yeah, I can only, I can only think of a couple off the top of my head that were I read them and I'm like meh. All all of them were at least pretty good up into amazingly well written. Well, there's the ones about Lord Soth I remember I really enjoyed those and uh, there was I Strahd which I really liked. Um, those are the ones that I can remember. Yeah, I Strahd was P and L Rod. Who That's right. Was well known for her own urban fan. Er, she was writing urban fantasy before urban fantasy was kind of a thing. A, a specific subgenre of its own. She she was she came around from like I think she started in the late '80s, and they brought her in to write this book, and it was one of the best written fantasy tie-in books for not especially for that sort of horror genre. It's right up there with the Dragonlance Chronicles yep. and all of those. Now, do you think Ari? Let's. This is a good question for you. Do you think that Ravenloft as a setting could does it still work for for new players? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a reason that it has come up in one form or another uh, in every edition since it was introduced. I, I think that it it still speaks to people. It's still the classic tropes still uh, work very well as a as an atmospheric shorthand as a basis for stories. I think the problem is figuring out how to use it. I mean, as, as both. <laughs> okay, e- even on a personal level. Uh, Ravenloft has kind of been my white whale I, 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 professionally. Um, you know, <laughs> when it was out in second edition, I wasn't in the industry. In third edition, White Wolf licensed it for a while. That's right. And I finally got a chance to work on the line, and it was what it was in what turned out to be the very last White Wolf Ravenloft oh. book. So I didn't get to do anything else with it. It, it didn't really that book didn't really didn't really pick up very much went back to Wizards of the Coast a few years later Wizards of the Coast was doing a new Ravenloft fiction line uh, called Ravenloft Dominion and the idea was oh this is where one of your books comes from isn't that right? sort of (laughs) yeah Uh, the idea was it was Ravenloft but with a step back from Dungeons and Dragons it was Ravenloft drawing characters not from D&D settings but from different periods in Earth history this is where Black Crusade comes yes, from. Yes, I was contracted to write a book called Black Crusade, which was going to be the first of the new Ravenloft books. And then it got pushed back because I was also writing uh, the first of the uh, Planeswalker novels for Magic the Gathering. The brand team, for you know, understanding that the Planeswalker novels were a big deal for them, they wanted that to be my first book for them because, you know, what if the Ravenloft book comes out and it doesn't do well and then bookstores don't want to order as many of the magic book? So, okay, 
I'm disappointed, but I can suck that up. So I'm not going to be the first Ravenloft book out after all. Problem is, after two or three novels, the line was canceled. Because that was right during the big re- the kind of reshuffle they did in the middle of fourth edition when they switched to essentials and because they oh no no this this, this was well before oh. that oh this before even that yes this is well before that no this was just my understanding narrowed down to the parts that I know I can talk about publicly is that the reprints of old Ravenloft novels had not done as well as ho- as hoped so the bookstores were not ordering as many of the new Dominion novels as would have been necessary. Uh, good old publishing industry. And then Hasbro handed down the edict to focus more on the core lines, so the Ravenloft line was cancelled before my novel got released. So what eventually happened is they we, we stuck it online. Uh, it is still available out there as a, as a free PDF download, basically as sort of an advertisement for, for my Magic the Gathering novel. <laughs> so I sort of did and didn't get to publish a Ravenloft novel. Now, because you were working on 4th edition uh, probably around this time, I believe, they had announced that, because they were, at the time in 4th edition, were releasing, like, one campaign setting per, like, yeah. uh, per <laughs> cycle with the uh, tie-in adventures, and then, because they had done, they started with, I believe, Forgotten Realms, then went to Eberron, then Dark Sun, and next up, Ravenloft, and then, all of a sudden, well, we're doing something called Shadowfell instead. Yep, and and then that's that was my, that was the third uh, my third attempt at the white whale. Oh, I, I was so upset when that got dropped. I I was looking forward to that. I had written an adventure for inclusion in the Ravenloft box set, and a second one for use on Ravenloft game day. Game day events, and as you said, that that got shuffled back and then canceled as well. So. Basically, three different times I have I have had a chance to work on Ravenloft, and then because of timing, it either didn't get released or didn't get released as it should have been, and didn't go anywhere. I am still itching for a real shot at Ravenloft. I'm putting my foot down now, Wizards of the Coast. I know you're getting in contact with some of the people who have handled previous editions for their campaign settings, hopefully to involve them in next. I know you've been in contact with Ed Greenwood. I know you've been in contact with um, Keith Baker for Eberron. Get Ari Marmel on Ravenloft this time. God damn you. <laughs> uh, I am Ari Marmel, and I support this message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's one of the things I, I just flat out love this setting. And one of the reasons why I wanted to know, I wanted to ask the question of, will this still work in the modern days? Because gothic horror, for the most part, kind of isn't a thing anymore. They've moved on to using some of the same tropes in urban fantasy, and they kind of get stripped away and stripped away to the point where you've got vampire diaries and true blood are your vampires in fiction right now. So, Don't forget Twilight. I didn't forget. I omitted intentionally. <laughs> but that, that, that's the thing, though, is that these, these things go in cycles. Because I know they're about to... I think they're doing another Frankenstein film. They are. And there is, there is really no doubt in my mind that you know, it, it'll never look the same each time it comes back around. But the gothic tropes will come back around. Well, you know, gothic, though, isn't just the only place you can find uh, horror in, in RPGs. And, no, and of I course think not. This, it's, it's a good time for us, actually, to probably talk about um, another big name in RPGs, which is Call of Cthulhu. Oh, yeah, that's... This is a game that's really, really popular. I really like, but I don't understand 
why it's so popular to actually play the game because part of Lovecraftian horror in general is the feeling of inevitability and the best you're going to be able to do as a hero in a Lovecraft novel is possibly even sacrificing your sanity or your life to stave off the end of the world for another week. Well, that's, you know, that's the thing that um, Call of Cthulhu kind of offers, though, that is unique about it as a game, is that you are playing characters that are, are not necessarily following the same adventuring paradigm that you do in almost every other game. You know, you, you, you kind of know that you're, you're playing Call of Cthulhu only for a limited time, right? You know, you're, you're maybe staving off midnight, you know, another five minutes, um, if you're lucky, and you know, there's something that there's there's something kind of cool and attractive about that in some ways. I, I the only times I've ever really enjoyed Call of Cthulhu was was as you know short limited campaigns where we didn't just play for years and years like we did with a lot of other games. Um, but I think that was intentional. I think that's because um, that's what Call of Cthulhu offered us. Well, and 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 I think that's that's actually a very good way to do a lot of the horror games. Uh, the best Call of Cthulhu games I've been part of, uh, the best Ravenloft games I've been part of, have all been basically mini campaigns you know we're going to play this for three or five or seven sessions and the story will be over and it, it's the same same thing here with, uh, with call of cthulhu especially if you're dealing with most mostly with uh you know you start with the the crazy cultists and don't bring in the uh you know the gibbering horrors from beyond time until until the last game of the campaign it is also one of the very few settings that actually um celebrates the 1920s era yes you don't really get, you know, you don't really carry around Tommy guns or or gas lamps. That's actually that's actually changing a lot, and because pulp is a big thing in independent role playing right now. I know of at least five pulp adventure games set in the twenties in various different subgenres of well, thereof. That, that may are be coming true out now. right now. Yeah, but, and that's just recently. Call of Cthulhu's been around since I think it was late eighties. Well, it's it? it's eighties certainly, um, but I'm saying you know during its heyday certainly uh, during its introduction that's what. You know, that's another thing, that's another reason why you would play Call of Cthulhu instead of some other game, is because it gave you a chance to play in a setting that was uh, maybe not unique, but um, definitely different than many of the other, you know, offerings. And it also gave you a chance to step into these, to the roles of these non-heroic characters, per se. You would play a librarian, an archaeologist, yeah. the, 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 the biggest you would get in terms of actual action hero type person is you might play the private eye. Exactly. Even st- still then, you're digging around looking for stuff, and that's one of the things, I think they got the theme dead on of the Lovecraftian novels, is that, at least to me, and I may be wrong on this, I haven't read everything Lovecraft has written, I've read probably about a third to a half of all the short stories and novels, but... Don't forget always... his uh, romance book, by the way, if you're going to go all out, I'm just saying. Mm, no thanks. Uh... <laughs> but it, it always seemed to me that kind of like the core message behind not all of them, but a lot of them were curiosity killed the cat. If you would just leave it alone... Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> it's when you start digging around, it's like, oh, what's this thing? Let me... Ooh, this leads me to this thing. And, okay, um, I'm now scratching the back of my head until it bleeds for no reason, because this is so disturbing to me, but I, I must find out more. And yeah. that, it, it kind of led to that. The more you look into it, the more it hurts you. And that's a core human drive is to find out unanswered questions, especially ones that should not be answered. In Call of Cthulhu, it's the one game where it's actually a strength to play a character who can't read, or to play a character (laughs) who's blind. 
either one of those two character types, you're probably going to survive longer. Now, of course, the thing <laughs> about Call of Cthulhu is that it is atmospheric, and it, it does capture a lot of the Lovecraftian. At the same time, you listen to people talk about playing it, and at least in my experience, eight times out of ten, it's going to end up with shotguns and dynamite. <laughs> well, isn't that true of games in general? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I, you know, I think there's, there's, there's only so far that even the most atmospheric game can... Uh, and, and, and I mean this with all affection because I count myself among them. There's only so far you can go before you're stuck with the fact that you're still dealing with gamers. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, yeah, we, about, and we went into that a lot in the last episode as well. The thing about Call of Cthulhu is, though, that, that the stories you tell about games of Call of Cthulhu are are different, are very different than the games you tell about the stories you tell about other games. Like if you tell a story about Dungeons and Dragons, you're telling about this great triumph you had where you you slayed the the vampire king. If and you're Call of Cthulhu is always about. And this ended horribly for us. Yeah, the stories you tell in, in Call of Cthulhu are, you know, how horribly we died, you know? <laughs> and it's still entertaining. Or how crazy you went and the weird yes. shit you did under the guises of, okay, uh, I read this book and now I'm completely gibbering mess. Yeah, half of those stories start with, and then I lost more sand points and picked up, ins- you know, a, a madness. <laughs> now, there's one thing else I wanted to touch on with Call of Cthulhu specifically is, there are a lot of Lovecraftian-themed games, and some of them start doing cross-genre stuff with it. And one of the ones that I've always found most fascinating is one that I've never actually played, but I want to so bad. It's Cthulhu Punk. I knew you were going to say that. You mean Cthulhu Tech? No, C- Cthulhu Punk, which was uh, was a um, GURPS oh. supplement that okay. crossed cyberpunk with Lovecraftian mythos stuff. Well, that's also true in Cthulhu Tech, but yes, fair enough. Or do I have the wrong name? Cthulhu, Shit, no, Cthulhu Tech is not a GURPS supplement, so you must be thinking okay. of Cthulhu Punk. Okay, but it possibly because I, I, th- I always thought Cthulhu Tech was more mecha. It is. Based. It is absolutely okay. is because Cthulhu Punk is not Cthulhu Punk is closer to Shadowrun than it is Battletech. Ah, okay, fair for enough. sure. But that's but either way, it goes into the same thing where it's. I'm going to take a step back and do what seems like a divergence, but it has a point that ties in. I promise. There's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I fucking love. It is the two-part where Angel loses his soul and becomes Angelus. And yes, I love that part of it, but there's another aspect to it is the big bad in that little two-parter was a demon known as the Judge. The Judge was such a powerful demon that no weapon forged by man could destroy him. And the big threat was... uh Spike and Drusilla were trying to reassemble the part they had. It took armies to come together and sunder him into five parts, and Drusilla and Spike were putting him back together to destroy the world. And then Angelus comes along, and because of him, succeeds. And this demon is running rampage, and meanwhile Buffy's in this bad headspace because she just lost her virginity to her first love, which caused him to turn into a complete psychopath. I hate when that happens. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just the brilliance of Whedon's storytelling. But anyway, the point of it is the climax of that two-parter, which, again, spoiler alert for something that's over a decade old, watch the goddamn thing already. Anyway, the climax is they're at a shopping mall and the judge is tearing things apart and then Buffy shows up and, a, and the judge says, no weapon forged by man can kill me. And then she picks up a fucking rocket launcher and says, that was then, this is now. And Jealous and Drusilla split and run 
away because they know what's going on. Judge tilts his head and says, what's that? And he gets blown into chunky salsa because, and this brings me back to Cthulhu Punk, is it brings in this idea to the Lovecraft mythos of descriptive versus proscriptive prophecy. The prophecy in that episode was descriptive. It described that no weapon forged by man at that point in time could destroy him. It wasn't proscriptive saying that no weapon forged by man at any point in history in the future will be able to kill him. The ancient cults wrote down that he was not able to be killed by swords and shields, which a lot of the ancient cults in Call of Cthulhu, they could not be killed by swords and shields and things like that. Then you get into, well, what's this squidgily, squirmy thing from beyond the stars going to deal with a fully automatic grenade launcher with a smart link or a monomolecular blade powered by a cybernetic arm? So it really brings that idea is, okay, how does this work? And I really think that's something that would be really cool to explore. There's also uh, another crossover, um, I believe it's called Eldritch Stars, um, and it's a fairly recent one. It's uh, kind of like a... Uh, space exploration RPG, almost like Traveler or Flash Gordon, maybe, and that also involves the mythos. Um, now, I'm not real familiar with it, so obviously, so uh, I'm just sort of mentioning it as uh, one, another type of crossover that you uh, may not have heard of. Does anyone else have anything else to say about Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraftian-themed role-playing? Well, I'm, I'm just wondering, just, just just real quick bit of trivia, which, you know, you guys are both gamers, so you may already know this, but... Are you familiar with the story behind uh, the Cthulhu Mythos appearing in the first printing of Deities and Demigods? Are you talking about the full story behind the scenes, or are you talking about just the story itself if they printed it and had to recall it? Oh no, I, I, I mean, I mean the the behind the scenes tale with the whole with, with the disclaimer and whatnot. I I know I have heard this story, but it is a great story, and I would love to hear you tell it. Yes, Ari, please tell us the story. Okay, well, as a storyteller, <laughs> once upon a time, no. Um, <laughs> The very first printing of the first edition Deities and Demigods for Dungeons and Dragons included, among others, you know, they had the various pantheons of, you know, Earth myth, Earth mythology, you know, the Olympians, the Egyptian gods, whatnot. And uh, also of Naewon. Yes. But it also included the uh, Cthulhu mythos uh, in the very first printing. That book came out, and Chaosium who already had the, uh, at that point, had the rights for Call of Cthulhu and whatnot, kind of tapped them on the shoulder and said, uh, hey, guys. And the eventual agreement was that Chaosium would, allow, would, would say, okay, you guys can keep printing the book with these, with, with these in it, but we want, we want something on the credits page saying, you know, Cthulhu mythos used with, with permission of Chaosium. I just want to step in one moment and heard. I've heard a slightly different version of this story. Okay. Where they printed deities and demigods, and then Gary Gygax called Chaosium and said, Hey, we printed this book with the Cthulhu mythos, and you're stepping on our intellectual property rights with your things. It's like, Oh, so you contacted the Lovecraft estate and got the rights? Oh, uh, let me call you ah, back. See, that, that detail I hadn't heard, but that's interesting. Okay. But, uh,. Either way, the, the agreement was that they could keep doing it as long as they had this notice on the credits page, which makes sense because, you know, at the time, Chaosium was much smaller than TSR. It's basically free advertising. Come the time of, I think, the third printing, management at TSR decided, well, we don't, we don't want to be advertising for our competition, and we're, we're not going to do that anymore. So we're just going to, we're going to strip the uh, Cthulhu Mythos out, out of the books, which is why the third printing onward didn't have them. Except... They stripped out the chapter. They did not strip out the credit. 
Oops. So wah, there is wah, at least wah. one printing, maybe more, of Days and Demigods that does not have Cthulhu in it, but still has on the credits page Cthulhu mythos used per by permission of Chaosium. <laughs> huh. That's interesting. Confused the hell out of me as a kid. <laughs> yeah, which one which one of these is supposed to be Cthulhu again? Yeah, right. Is that Corlon Lorethian? <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's an interesting story. But yeah, uh, you know, so we have talked about White Wolf, which was you know the most recent, probably the biggest influential publisher of horror RPGs. We've talked about Ravenloft, sort of the granddaddy, and we've talked about Call of Cthulhu, which is you know another of those big titan, you know, pillars of, of horror RPGs. What are some other uh, horror RPGs that you guys uh, can think of that we want to talk about before we uh, wrap up? I know of one that's going to be coming out very, very soon. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't really know much about the guy who made it, but it's called Cursed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, technically, I would have to say Cursed is actually more of a dark fantasy setting than it is a horror setting because the tropes of a Cursed are really more about the, you know, sort of Solomon Kane, I'm a monster hunter fighting other monsters, rather than, you know, exploring that that deep personal horror or exploring cosmic horror or exploring even the idea of just sort of creeping you out. Although we did try and make the monsters as creepy as possible, it's not... I, w- I wouldn't say Accursed really is a, real, uh, a horror RPG at the end of the day. I would say it's action... You know, I would say it's a dark fantasy. Is what I would well, say. you can also make the same arguments about World of Darkness as well. In that case, uh, it's kind of, yeah, but it, the intention of... The intention is different than the execution. Uh, my intention with, with Accursed was not to be horror. The intention with World of Darkness was to be horror. But the reason why I wanted to bring it up is, A, to plug your product. Oh, and thank to, you. <laughs> and to be, it, even if it isn't necessarily horror, it definitely plays on the same tropes as yes. horror, horror, classic horror books and films. Yeah, like, hammer, like Hammer horror films and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Accursed, Accursed does play with a lot of those tropes. And yeah, if you want to play... You know, monsters that team up together to fight witches, that is absolutely the right game for you. So, yes, and definitely check us out at uh, accursedrpg.com, and you can uh, find our successful Kickstarter page uh, by searching <laughs> for Accursed RPG on Kickstarter. So, thank you for the plug. I really appreciate it. And I, I, think, I think, honestly, and this, this is an entirely different podcast by itself, but uh, I, I, you just touched on something that I've, I've, I've argued before, which is that horror and fantasy they're, they're, they're the same genre just looked at from two different angles mm. they, they, that's an interesting perspective whether or not you, the heroes are able to tackle the challenge I mean there's, there's a little more a little more to it than that but yes uh, I, you know you talk about boiling things down to the tropes and I, I'm a huge fan of using classic tropes but uh, yeah I, I would argue that I, it's, it's not even that you have to you know it's not even that you have to change them slightly you can take the exact same story and tell it as a fantasy or a horror well, a mind flayer is a pretty fucking scary thing when you actually break it down and think about exactly. it. Exactly. That, that, that was one of the things that we tried, not as successfully as I, as I would have liked, but at least, you know, somewhat okay, <laughs> to, uh, to deal with in the 3rd uh, edition D&D Heroes of Horror book, was talking about how to take fantasy creatures that are considered to be just challenges to overcome and, and make them horrific. Anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a sidetrack, but uh, you just got me thinking. But no, as far as other uh, horror role-playing games, most of my experience has been with, with those three, White Wolf, Ravenloft, uh, Call of Cthulhu. I did play a game of Cult once. Ooh, um, Cult. Yeah, that's one I haven't heard of in a long time. 
you know, that's one where I can see how things could have gotten really weird if we'd kept playing. We only got the one game in. So I can't really give an opinion on it. I'm just mentioning it because, yes, I have played it. Well, you know, um, Daryl was talking about, you know, he really enjoyed the idea of, like, mixing horror and, you know, some cyberpunk-type elements. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a game I think he would have really, really liked, um, Dark Conspiracy. I have heard of that name before, but that's about all I know of it. I think I, think I remember seeing a catalog ad for it or something like that. Well, if, it. Yeah, the games are, are well out of print, um, but there is it, it was actually supported by a very strong trilogy by uh, Mike Stackpole, um, mm-hmm. if you're interested in reading the game fiction for it sometime. It's very, very good. And Dark Conspiracy, I thought, was a neat... Uh, horror game, a uh, horror RPG setting. It, it definitely, you know, puts you in, in the the role of investigators. You know, learning more about you know the horrible things that lurk beyond our reality. Uh, but it also it added in some of the it added in some of the corruptive elements of of things like Call of Cthulhu without straying into the whole idea of uh, of sanity loss. Uh, I'm not an expert on it by any means, but it was it was very neat. I, I definitely own um, a couple of books for it. Um, and I, I just want to recommend it as something for people to, if they're if they're interested in, in researching more about horror RPGs in general, that would be one I would say you should look at. Okay, and, and I am now also going to plug something. Hooray! Please do. I'll bring it back to gaming in just a second. Myself, uh, James Gates, and C.A. Suleiman have been putting together basically a uh, an almost Thieves' World style shared world fantasy anthology. Ooh. Called <laughs> called Tales of the Lost Citadel, and this is effectively dark fantasy slash horror fantasy. Um, the conceit is it is set in a single city, much as as Thieves World was sanctuary, but in this case, it is the last city. It is a fantasy world which. In, in which nobody knows what happened. Maybe the gods went mad. Something, something, the gates of hell broke down. We basically took a fantasy setting and subjected it to a zombie apocalypse. We don't call it that in the, in the, in the book, but that's what it is. Wow. The city is literally the last bastion in a world that is overrun with the undead. But the undead are used primarily... They're not actually the story focus. They're, they're sort of a background... They're what we use to explain why the city exists as it is. And I could give a lecture on why that's the right approach to do for an undead war. <laughs> but. but, so, we have the idea the city is multiple cultures trying to mix, multiple races trying to mix, different castes, different classes, uh, poverty, suffering, horror. <laughs> um, anybody who dies needs to be disposed of because they could rise. It's 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 basically as we call it. Uh, we've been putting it as uh, this is this is this is a Tolkien fantasy that has been torn down to a uh, Howard or Lieber fantasy. Hmm. Uh, high fantasy made low fantasy via horror. Nice. And while right now it is a fiction anthology with a number of writers we're talking to, uh, we are talking to people about doing a role playing game attached to it. Well, you know, Ari, I just want to mention that uh, I am available for hire <laughs> for both fiction and game design. So just just let you just letting you know. Okay. Well, I, I, I will I will keep you guys informed how it's going. Uh, anybody who wants to check it out, we have a page up. Uh, it's a Facebook page, but it's public, so I don't think you have to be a Facebook member. Just look for Lost Citadel on Facebook, and you'll get an idea of the uh, 
uh, the basic mood and feel and theme we're going for. It sounds really cool, Ari. I wish you all luck with that. I hope that turns out really well for you guys. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to wrap up here shortly, but I just want to mention one uh, last couple of games that uh, we have talked about previously on the podcast. We talked about Nightlife, which was the kind of proto-World of Darkness. And we talked about, uh, well, we may not have talked about it before, but we should talk about it now. Um, also, Deadlands is an interesting mm. look at horror role-playing, although it's, you know, slightly, slightly less horror, slightly more action maybe than, than some of the other ones we've talked about tonight. I don't even think I want to describe it this way because the movie was so bad, but one of the ways that it's always been explained to me is it's kind of, it's kind of in a way, Jonah Hex. Well, Jonah Hex the character rather than the film, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, the- uh, yeah it's, it's, it's very Jonah Hex in a way, yeah. In fact, I had a friend of mine played a character who was basically Jonah Hex in the end Deadlands, so... Those are, those are some games that if you, if any of our listeners are interested in finding out more about horror RPGs in general, that's what they should check out. Now, if they're interested in finding out more about Ari Marmel and what Ari Marmel is up to, where should they go? <laughs> they can check either mouseferatu.com, which is M-O-U-S-E-F-E-R-A-T-U, or if uh, that's too silly to remember, just arimarmel.com, they can do the same place. All right. And what is your newest thing? Besides Tales from the Lost City, what is your newest thing? The next thing coming out in two months is the third Wittershins book, and then early next year is Hot Lead, Cold Iron, which is the first of the uh, the 1930s noir fantasies. And the first of hopefully many. <laughs> and you also have an ebook coming out soon, don't you? Yes. Um, Kickstarter? I, a collection of, uh, of short fiction, both reprint and original stuff, called Strange New Words. Outstanding. And uh, once again, we want to thank you, Ari, for joining us on Episode 5 of You All Meet in a Tavern. Right now, I, I see that the, there's uh, Imperial Guardsmen poking their heads in. Uh, usually they do that right before the tavern closes for the night. So we're going to have to wrap this up. But it has been a real pleasure having you on the show with us. And we appreciate you taking the time out to uh, talk to us about horror and games. Thanks for the invite. Thank you once again for joining us at the Gamer's Tavern. Wait, that's different than what I called the podcast at the start of the show, isn't it? Ah, there's going to be a big announcement on our website at gamerstavern.org in just a day or two, so make sure you drop by. And while you're there, you can support the show by leaving a comment or visiting our sponsors. You can also review us on iTunes, and your comments and reviews might just get read on air. Next week, our topic will be technology in gaming with guest Jason Marker. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 license, except where noted in the show notes. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, the tavern is closed.